Well, good morning, and it is good to be with you and good to worship with you and have this privilege of bringing God's Word to you as well. I'm also happy to bring you greetings from uh, Calvin Theological Seminary and our president, Joe Maidenblick. Um, things at the seminary are a mess right now, not spiritually, uh, but physically, because basically the entire building is undergoing a major renovation this summer. So I haven't seen any of my colleagues for months, um, but we're hoping to be back in there in time for classes this fall and uh, cover your prayers for a new school year soon to begin. We're going to turn to the Old Testament uh, this morning to the second book of the Bible, Exodus, at the 16th chapter. Just by way of reminder, as we read this, uh, this is very, very soon after the exodus from Egypt and right after the people of Israel crossed the Red Sea. Uh, the, the waters parted, you remember, and they crossed the sea, and then when the Egyptians tried to pursue them, the waters went back to their place, and so that threat was taken away from Israel. And in the 15th chapter, we had a great celebration, and Moses' sister Miriam led the community in singing. And then we pick up the story here at chapter 16. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. And in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. They said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you've brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. And in this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites, In the evening you will know it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he's heard your grumbling against him. I mean, who are we that you should grumble against us? And Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because he's heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. And then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And while Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. And that evening quail came down and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. And when the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. And when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, What is it? For they didn't know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread the Lord has given you eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone gather as much as they need. Take an omer for each person that you have in your tent. And the Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much didn't have too much. And the one who gathered little didn't have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. And we give thanks to God for his holy word. In Aldous Huxley's novel, Brave New World, 
Huxley imagined a future uh, in which all society would be massively engineered to avoid suffering. And hence the people in this brave new world would tend to be placid, unflappable, seemingly happy. And yet it was discovered that they cannot survive physically without the adrenaline that gets pumped into our systems when we are afraid or in pain. And so to make up for their lack of normally produced adrenaline, the people of Huxley's future brave new world had to receive monthly adrenaline injections. And that seems to have been Huxley's way of saying that uh, a suffering-free state of placidness isn't just unhealthy, maybe it's not even quite human. On the other hand, we could ponder the character of Miss Havisham from Charles Dickens' novel, Great Expectations. Years before, Miss Havisham had been jilted on her wedding day. The, the groom just never showed up. And ever since, Miss Havisham has shut herself up inside a dark house and in the very room where the wedding reception was to have taken place. And by the time we catch up with her in the novel, she is now a very old lady, but she still wears her wedding dress, now tattered and smelly and yellowed with age. Her wedding cake still sits on the buffet table, but it's now desiccated and rotten and rat-eaten. The clock on the wall is stopped at the precise hour and minute when the wedding was to have taken place. Miss Havisham is trapped in time, frozen by her suffering. So here are two literary images that detail two possible responses to suffering. We can try to avoid suffering altogether, Pretend it's not real, and so pursue a, a lifelong uh, pursuit toward a, a pain-free existence. Or we can become so walloped by our pains and disappointments in life as to become trapped by them. And probably we all know people who fit one of these two categories. If we thought about it, most of us could think of somebody we know who has never shed a tear in our presence, who's always sunny side up, whose response to even a terrible event is always to say, I'm fine, don't worry about me. Then again, we may know someone else who gnaws on an unhappy past event like a dog with a bone. If you spend more than three minutes talking to Robert, you will all but certainly hear about how rotten life has been to him and about how he got cheated out of something back in 1966 and nothing has ever been the same since. Denial and despair. But are those the only two possible reactions to the fact that life, each person's life, contains a fair share of hard knocks, letdowns, disappointments, and flat-out tragedies? Or is there a third way to respond to suffering? Well, Exodus 16, I think, is an early biblical hint that there is that third way. And it's the way of growth, of maturity, of trusting in God, even when, or maybe it's especially when, the bottom drops out. And it is just possibly the way of finding a deeper and stronger faith in God as a result. 
Now, as I said before I read the passage, if you just back up a chapter in Exodus, you will see the people of Israel singing and dancing by the shores of the Red Sea. And then after that, they enjoy a a mini stretch of paradise in a pretty place called Elam. But the march toward redemption couldn't stop there. A trek through the wilderness has to come first, and no sooner does that journey begin, and we find in Exodus 16 a nearly opposite, a reverse portrayal of everything that we had just seen in the celebration and the joy and the singing and the dancing of the previous chapter. Sounds of timbrel and singing and dancing have been replaced by sounds of muttering and grumbling and the shuffling of sandaled feet through scorching sand. And the result is some historical revisionism on the parts of the people. Suddenly, Egypt looms on the horizons of their imaginations. But now Egypt is suddenly no longer the house of bondage, the place where taskmasters wielded cruel whips and where dead Hebrew babies floated in the Nile River. No, now Egypt transforms into kind of a deluxe resort a veritable club med of a place. The hunger in their bellies tricks their minds to remembering nothing about Egypt except pâté de foie gras or roast tenderloin of veal and the Merlot reduction sauce, roasted creme brulee. And so they complain to Moses, who tells the people they're really not complaining to him, but to God. So they'd better watch their step. And indeed, Yahweh, Israel's God, he hears the people, but curiously enough in this chapter, he doesn't speak a harsh word. True, God says, he will yet find a way to test these people. But in this early stage of Israel's desert wanderings, God doesn't seem to blame the people for wanting something good to eat. Because God knows the wilderness is a place of death. In fact, in the Bible, the wilderness is usually described by the very same two Hebrew words that in Genesis 1 was used to describe the the pre-creation chaos. It's tohu vebohu in Hebrew, just sort of wasteless chaos. That's how the world was before God created it, and that's how the wilderness always gets described too. But in the original creation, of course, you know, God shoved aside the chaos to create cosmos. But then sin came, and chaos made a comeback. Some of those good creation barriers that God had set in place to protect human life and flourishing, well, they they started to erode. And when the protective barriers started to erode, human life got threatened. And again, nowhere in the Old Testament, or the New Testament for that matter, nowhere can that return of chaos be seen more clearly than in the desert wastes. The wilderness was the place where the devil ran wild, where the demons howled, where human life is threatened at every turn. The wilderness is a place of death. But it's also the path through which the Israelites needed to take toward life in the promised land. But as the commentator Terence Fretheim has written, in the heat of the desert, there would be many occasions when the very hope of the promised land would start to shimmer like a desert mirage 
People's faith would erode like the shifting desert sands while their dreams tattered along with their tents in the scorching desert winds. And so not surprisingly, the people complain. This is not what they had signed on for. This didn't look like the promised land travel brochures that Moses and Aaron had shown them back in Egypt. They needed to know if it was possible that God was with them in that dreadful place. And on this occasion, God seems only too happy to comply by showering down provisions on the people. But in the midst of all of that, in Exodus 16, verse 10, there is a a verse that, that may be one of the most startling and vivid verses in the whole Bible. It's a verse, I think, that should be written in large letters over top of all of our hearts. Because the people of Israel are hurting. They're hungry. They're no doubt afraid. Their suffering is getting bad enough that that many of them have swiveled around and turned back east, back, uh, back west rather, back toward Egypt, back to what for better or worse had for a long time, 400 years, been their home. So what happens in Exodus 16, verse 10? Well, the Lord God himself gently takes the people by the shoulders and he turns them east, away from Egypt. He turns them east toward the terrible wilderness. But what do the people see when they look east into the wilderness? (laughs) They see the glory of the Lord. Just let that sink in a sec. They looked into the hard times of life. That's where they saw God. They were were trying to look for God back in Egypt. And yet, it wasn't there. But it was when peering into the place of death and suffering. That is where they saw the glory of the Lord. And they would see that glory in the wilderness, new every morning through the manna, that God would feed the people the bread from heaven, They would get bread from heaven even though they were in kind of a living hell on earth. For some reason, the wilderness was the cradle in which God would nourish and and nurture his people toward a greater maturity. But why? Why bring the people here? Why did God show his glory in the wilderness? Well, maybe to foster dependence and trust. It's in the hard times of life when all of our normal support systems get knocked out from underneath us. See, if the people were going to go on now, uh, it would only be because the Lord provided for them every single day. And that's why the people couldn't stockpile the manna, right? Um, I mean, think of it this way. If your retirement portfolio is fat and rich and full and in fine fiscal shape, how much time do you uh, devote to praying about that retirement portfolio? If your pantry and cupboards and fridge and freezer at home are are full and nicely stocked, you may not worry, you may not know what you're going to have for dinner tonight, but you don't worry about or pray that, that you will eat something as opposed to nothing. 
See, in the wilderness, God showed his glory to Israel morning by morning so that ideally there would never be a day when anyone would wonder why they were still alive. I mean, we tend to think of the manna as only a gift, but if you paid attention when I read that passage earlier, when God first refers to it, he refers to it as a test. Will they, can they rely on God? You know, nobody wants to suffer. Only sick masochists eagerly pursue pains and hurt. And all things being equal, our Lord God doesn't want us to suffer either. God didn't launch Adam and Eve into Eden with the promise of hunger and want. But in the post-Eden world, sickness, want, hunger, loss, and death are our realities. And after a year and a half of a global pandemic, I hardly need to remind anybody of that. Now that's not good news. But there is some good news, some comfort to be found in the fact that those things do not force God to abandon us. None of us purposely moves out into the wilderness, but sometimes we get cast out there anyway. And then the question becomes, now what? Will I just deny this pain and act like it's no big deal? Or will I get trapped in this pain and so curdle into a lifelong bitterness? Or, in and through my understandable laments and weeping, will I nonetheless look for the glory of the Lord that just may be revealed to me even in this hellish place of suffering and even death? Now, I'm not trying to be simplistic in setting the matter in those terms. I myself am no stoic, uh, no saint, who finds it easy to look for God when I'm hurting. And I'm not above thinking some fairly dark and grim things and some fairly unspiritual things if I find myself in a wilderness place. When someone says to me something along the lines of, Scott, God is just building bigger character in you, my first response is, then I'll take a little less character. Thank you very much. And let me be honest enough to admit that I've not been through some of the deep wilderness valleys that some of you here this morning have been through and in which you may be yet this very morning. Sooner or later, sorrow finds us all. Sooner or later, something happens that we never saw coming. We were just sure we were entering the right career path 20 or 25 years ago, but it just never worked out. We wanted our kids to be as happy and settled and stable as the children of so many other families we know. But somehow or another, two of our three children ended up getting divorces. And every time we look into the eyes of our grandchildren, it about kills us all over again. You thought you could trust Cindy at work, but then behind your back she bad-mouthed you to the boss and then took your job the minute you got fired. Well, we don't choose the wilderness path, but so many of our lives end up trekking right through it anyway. It's a hard world. So please don't read me as being trite. 
There are no pat answers, no easy solutions, no quick escape routes out of the desert wastes where we sometimes find ourselves. All I can say is that for those who are willing to look hard and long into the wilderness places, there is that possibility of seeing the glory of the Lord even so. Because do you remember what happened first thing to the one who is known as Jesus? If crossing through the Red Sea was kind of like Israel's baptism, well, then we can remember that in his baptism, Jesus also came up out of the waters of the Jordan. But do you recall the utterly vivid and startling way that the Gospel of Mark presents that to us? Jesus goes down into the waters of baptism, comes up out of the river, only to have the Holy Spirit descend upon him like a dove. But then that dove suddenly transmogrifies into kind of a fierce raptor bird who picks Jesus up in his talons and hurls him out into the desert. Immediately, Mark tells us, his favorite word, immediately upon being baptized, the Holy Spirit of God hurled Jesus into the wilderness for 40 days of temptation and danger. Immediately, just like Israel. It seems that right after baptism, sometimes wilderness trials come. The great preacher Fred Craddock once noted that the disciples turned apostles performed what Craddock described as a majestic flip-flop. Because you see, all along, the Jews who were anticipating the arrival of the Messiah, they summed up their anticipation with the phrase, when the Messiah comes, no suffering. You see that person over there, all shriveled up with arthritis and in constant pain? Well, when the Messiah comes, you won't see that anymore. When the Messiah comes, no suffering. You see that blind man? You see that crippled woman? You see that broken family? Well, when the Messiah comes, you won't see any more of that. When the Messiah comes, no suffering. But well, then the actual Messiah showed up in the person of Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified one. And so the disciples ended up doing a flip-flop, a reversal, uh, where they ended up proclaiming that from now and until he comes again, wherever you see suffering, that's where you find the Messiah. Where there is suffering, Messiah. My daughter Juliana is 29 now, but 25 years ago or so when she was just a little three, four-year-old, she suddenly got sick across a couple of days, dragging her foot just a little bit at first, then limping, then having some pretty serious pain in her ankle. Two trips to urgent care yielded no answers. Finally, our own pediatrician got to see her, and he diagnosed quite swiftly a life-threatening osteomyelitis infection in her ankle joint, an infection that needed swift treatment. And so began a week-long stay in the hospital with IV antibiotics and several horrible needle aspirations of her little ankle joint. Four or so days into her hospitalization was a Sunday, and though my elders maybe would have given me the morning off had I asked, I, I preached the morning service anyway. But my heart and mind were elsewhere, and I was so tired. 
After the service, though, I was greeted by a gaggle of uh, three- and four-year-olds out in the church narthex. They were members of my daughter's children in worship class, and with the teacher's help, they had made her a really big get-well card. They had all put their little hands into paint and then pressed them up against this big piece of cardboard, over top of which the teacher had written the words, Juliana, you are in God's hands. And suddenly, right there... (laughs) In all those little patty prints, I saw the glory of the Lord at church of all places. Now, we were still in a hard place. She would stay at DeVos Children's Hospital for a week, and then we had, had to have surgery to have a Broviac port inserted, and then that followed three weeks of round-the-clock IV antibiotics at home. But through all those little kids, I got to see the glory of the Lord after all. And so many of you have the exact same story to tell. The card that came in the mail at just the right moment. The -the out-of-the-blue Facebook message that gave you a boost in a bad season of your life. The caring person who dropped off a potato chip-crusted tuna casserole just to say she cared. It's all the glory of the Lord in the wilderness. So Jesus has been to the wilderness, and so he's still there when we arrive there as well. Oh, it's still a disorienting place. The demons still howl into our ears there, and we may well discover all kinds of reasons to question our faith or wish for a change or just generally want to turn back westward to go back to Egypt, where whatever Egypt is for you. But the Spirit of God turns us eastward toward the place of suffering. And may in the end, somehow and against all odds, right there, God will reveal to us His glory. We don't need to deny the reality of hurts in our lives. We don't need to let suffering have the last word on everything either. But if, by the grace of God, we can discover the love of Jesus made the more vivid to us, even in the wilderness then we may yet find a reason to give God the glory as he leads us along to that new and better country that just is the kingdom of God. Amen.